Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head and when he arrived Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God and when the man came into the city and told the news all the city cried out now when Eli heard the sound of the outcry he said what is this uproar then the man hurried and came and told Eli Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attended her, said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Uh, today we are continuing our walk through the book of First Samuel. Uh, last week we, we saw the Israelites engage in this battle. And the Israelites lost. Uh, They were battling the Philistines. The Philistines, according to the text of Scripture, we see this in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the Philistines. God left the Philistines in the land so that the Philistines would be a thorn in the side of the Israelites and so that the gods of the Philistines would be a stumbling block to his chosen nation the Israelites. God had his purpose for doing this. This is something that God was working together. It it was not the case that Israel could just avoid the Philistines. It's not an option. God left them there for a purpose, that they would be a thorn, that their gods would be a stumbling block to the Israelites. And so the Israelites go to meet the Philistines in battle as happened often. Right? This time they lost. And when they lost, the elders came back to to the camp And they said, why, why has the Lord God defeated us before the Philistines? They recognized the sovereignty of God, and they recognized that God was actually the one working all this together, even working together the defeat of Israel. As a result of this defeat, the Israelites came up with this plan to try and win a victory. First, they 
said, God is sovereign, and then they said, let's take this into our own hands. It didn't really make that much sense, but this is what they did, and God was working this together according to his, his, own, his own plan. They said, let's bring the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, into battle with us. And by the power of the Ark of the Covenant, we will be delivered and we will claim victory. Hophni and Phinehas, it was their job to carry the Ark of God. God had already promised that Hophni and Phinehas would die because of their sin. So they carried the Ark of God into battle and the Israelites lost again. This time worse than the first time. Hophni and Phinehas died in battle. And this is where we pick up in the text for, for today as we continue in this story. As we look at the text for today, as we examine the text, as we dig into the text this morning, we're going to see in verses 12 through 18 that, that God's Word is fulfilled. God's Word is the thing that is fulfilled. What God declares comes to pass. And in verses 19 through 22, we're just, we're just going to see how people mess up the view of God's glory. We're going to see the skewed view of God's glory. The first, we, we will look at verses 12 through 18 together. Now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head, signs of grieving. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting in his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. This wailing could be heard. And when Eli heard this outcry, which was so loud that this man, who is described in the text of being hard of hearing and hard of sight and, 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 and decrepit and large, but we don't have to include that detail all the time. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly, and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. Already we know this isn't good. He, he had to escape. He's not returning with the trumpets. He's not returning in victory. He escaped the battle line today. And he said... How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been taken. The ark of God has been taken. Two weeks ago, when we explored the, the passage leading up to this one, the first, the first half of, of chapter 4, we, we saw that victory, the victory of God, is, is not the same as our personal victory, right? 
the Israelites, they had in mind one type of victory, but God was winning quite another type of victory. If I can remind us of some of the, th the things that God has spoken leading up to this, this, this text, and, and, and I, think I, I think I can. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 29, we see that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli are living in sin. They are embezzling the sacrifices of the people to God. They are stealing the meat that rightfully belongs to God for themselves. And they are, they are not performing the sacrifices according to the way that the law said they ought to practice sacrifices. They were causing the entire nation to live in sin because they were not fulfilling their duties as priests of God and, and as the, the high priestly family, the household of Eli. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 25, we see that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli were reprobate. What this means is that from the start, God desired to put them to death. Hophni and Phinehas were wicked men, and we talked about how that literally meant sons of Baliel. The literal language there, sons of Baliel, sons of Satan. They were sinning because their nature was causing them to sin. They did not listen to the advice of Eli because God desired to put them to, to death. In chapter 2, verse 34, we see that Hophni and Phinehas are actually sentenced to death along with with Eli. So God has spoken this two chapters prior, before this battle even takes place, before, before Samuel is, is growing up, right? Before Samuel hears from God, before Samuel grows up, before Samuel becomes a prophet, before Samuel becomes this, this, this priest that God is raising up for himself. God has already declared that Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, this household, will die, will be put to death. And as we, we looked through this battle scene in the first half of chapter 4, we, we saw the Word of God being fulfilled, God working things together in, in such a way that Hophni and Phinehas died on the same day, just as God had spoken. In chapter 3, verse, verse 14, we see as... God is telling Samuel what to go tell this man who had raised him, Eli. We, we even see that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, the scripture says, will not be atoned for forever. Which means they are not covered by any sort of atonement. Even to this day, and that would include the atonement that Christ won on the cross. This is the ultimate punishment for people who are lost in their unrighteousness and lost in their sin and unable by any sort of religiosity or trying to follow any, any instruction of their own willpower or, or just trying to live a better life. You can't get there. Atonement was not made for them and will not be made for them forever. And in chapter 2, verse 35, we see, we see God's purpose for working all of this together. And he says, I will raise up a priest. 
He's talking about saying, no, I will raise up a priest who will do all that is within my, my mind and within my soul or within my, within my heart. We've talked about how from, from Genesis leading up to, to this point in, in the text, God has been showing people that, no, you can't do it. No, you can't be good enough. No, you can't follow the law. No, you can't keep this checklist. No, you can't live a better life. And no, you can't live your best life. And, and all of this moralistic teaching, is just, it's not going to benefit you. The only thing that's going to benefit you is if you are atoned for in Christ. And we see these messianic prophecies coming from, from early, early in the text. And in chapter 2, verse 35, we see God saying, I will raise up a priest who will do all, this, all that is in my, my mind and in my soul or in my heart. And in the first half of chapter 4 and in the passage for today, we see God working this together where, where Samuel will, will be promoted and he will come to become the priest and he will, he will become this, this judge. And through First and Second Samuel, we're seeing the, the throne of Jesus Christ being established within Jesus' creation. And it's something that God is working out. And the first thing that we see in this passage is that God's word comes to pass. And he works things out. This is a description of the working out of things. When this messenger comes to Eli and reports these things, he is reporting the action of God. And the people wail and they cry out and it's devastating and they are defeated by God before the Philistines. And I just... The obvious application is... Is this right? How often do we misinterpret the, the work of God as something that must necessarily bring people happiness? And there's this great mistruth being propagated in our society and in our, in our culture. And it is, it is this... If you have faith in Jesus, your life will go well. What about God's chosen nation Israel here losing more than, more than 30,000 people in one day? Grieving. Losing the ark of God. This is, where does this fit into our theology? It, it doesn't fit into most people's theology. We skip over this part of the Bible. It's kind of hard to do when you're walking through Scripture. People tend to notice when you skip something. <laughs> so sorry, I couldn't skip it this morning. But the gospel isn't about us achieving some sort of happiness in, in this life or achieving our, our best life now or us, us living better lives on this earth or, or just trying to make better decisions. I mean, the gospel is deeper than this, right? God is the one working. He is working according to his, to his purpose. He is working according to his, his own will. 
And this works out for our good. In this context, let me ask you, what good is being accomplished here? Do you see it? We see it if we read the rest of the Bible. It doesn't say explicitly in this text. Because God is establishing the throne of Jesus Christ in His creation. No, we know that by reading the whole of the Bible, right? Because of this, because of Christ's throne being established within His creation, because the dynasty of David will be established on this earth, and, and Christ will come in uh, as a member of this dynasty, as a, as a king in the lineage of, of, of David. Because of this, atonement will be made for sins. God will fulfill the covenant that He made with Abraham. It's, it's because of this part of the story, essential part of the story, pivotal part of the story between the time of the judges and the time of the kings that we even get to experience the amazing grace in the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. We don't get there without this defeat. We don't get there without the death of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas according to the will of, of, of God. And so, in an amazing way, this is good news. And God's plan is working out for the good of His people. The people that He has chosen from before the foundation of the world. Verse 18 when he, the messenger, mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel 40 years. We remember this, this is the, the, the finishing moments. These are, these are the the finishing moments, the closing moments of the time of the judges and the opening moments of the time of the, of the kings. Eli was serving not only as the high priest but as the, the judge over Israel at this time. And Samuel would become the last judge after him, also serving as prophet and priest and, and, and king, right? And so Eli is, is the judge at this moment, at the moment of his his death and he judged Israel for for 40 years and here in this in this verse we we see that everything that God has declared concerning the house of Eli is finished it's done God followed through with his God doesn't make idle promises he doesn't make idle declarations his word is sure what he declares comes to pass and it, and it came to pass God was working this together in His own timing and in His own way. We, we don't get the purpose of God. Guys, unless we've looked at the whole of Scripture, we don't know where this fits in the narrative unless, unless we look at the whole of Scripture. In fact, I'm willing to say that it is impossible to interpret rightly one verse or passage of Scripture if we pluck it from the context of the whole story. Did you know that it's not just First and Second Samuel that's one unit? It's the whole of the Bible that is one unit. 
telling one single unified story. And I think one of the greatest downfalls of Christian culture in our day, right, is that we pluck a verse out of context, stick it on a picture, post it on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever. We don't get, get the story. Tell me this, when you read a book, you open up to a random page and read that page and close it and assume you know what the whole book is about. No, you want to get into it, you want to start at the beginning, you want every plot twist to catch you off guard, right? When you read a how-to book, do you skip to instruction number five? Well, some people do. <laughs> some men, now men, hear me on this. Especially you men that are very proficient when it comes to construction. We don't even look at the directions. <laughs> we get that thing from, from wherever we're getting at Home Depot or Walmart. Does anybody get furniture at Walmart? And man, shh, I don't need to look at that. We put that thing together. Sometimes we're successful. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually not. But guys, we don't just read step number five or assume we know it. We read the instructions. At least it's good to, right? When we're reading any kind of theological or scientific or academic book or philosophical book or, or medical journal. Now, I, I know of a doctor who recently told me, I won't mention his name, <coughs> Dale. Um, <laughs> yeah, I hired that out. I have somebody read the whole thing, and summary, of course, has to do with time constraints, I'm sure. But guys, we don't read academically and just read a little part of it and assume we know a whole argument. Why do we treat the Bible with less attention than we treat anything else? How many of you watched a movie this week? Actually, it's more like a TV show. We're watching Monk. Yeah. 2003. Season 2. Aired in 2003. You know, I don't know how old that was. I was, I was younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. We didn't just flip on the TV and go to scene selection on the guide and select the scene and watch that scene and assume we knew what the episode is. <laughs> Better yet, we didn't string the scenes together out of order and skip some of them, the ones we didn't like, and string the scenes together out of order and, and thought to arrive at the right message or interpretation of the episode or the, or the season or the movie or, or whatever... Why do we treat the Bible with less reverence than we treat television? Gosh, guys. We can't. We gotta know what the whole the whole story. And this piece of the story fits in so beautifully. God's word is whole word is fulfilled and not a single piece of his word is, 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 is left without God's special attention and God's working together of all things he, he declares the end from the beginning 
Secondly, we'll see verses 19 through 22, we'll see the skewed view of God's glory. Glory is so interesting. I wonder if we really know what glory is. People fight and die for glory. People play sports for glory. People compete in the Olympics for for glory. What is glory? What is this thing called glory? One of my favorite movies, speaking of movies, Gladiator. Such a good movie. Heart-wrenching movie. Such a good movie. Maximus, the, the protagonist, is in battle. This is the beginning of the movie. He's in battle. And they win the battle. He goes in to talk to Caesar, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius asks him, Why are we here, Maximus? Maximus's answer immediately, calmly, respectfully talking to Caesar. Glory of the empire, sir. Glory. Glory of the empire. So a little bit later in this conversation, Marcus Aurelius asks, Have you been to Rome? Maximus, no. Despite the glory of the empire. No, I haven't been to Rome. Marcus Aurelius, you don't know what it has become. What is Rome? He asks. What is Rome? Glory. The concept of glory. We we use this word. I'm not sure we know exactly what we're saying when we use this word. We read this part of the text, verses 19 through 22. Now, his daughter-in-law, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife was pregnant and about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and she gave birth. Stress does that if you didn't know. For her pains came upon her and about the time of her death the, the women who stood by her side said to her, don't be afraid. You, you have given birth to a son. Something to celebrate in the midst of all this travesty. You have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Her grief was overcoming. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory, glory, the glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God was taken. For the ark of God was taken. Glory, the Greek word, kavones, it's derived from a word that means And this word kavod seems to indicate that that the person we're speaking about or the object we are speaking about is laden. It's where the word heavy is, laden 
with riches and power and honor and majesty and position glory you get a picture of what this looks like glory describes all of these things it's like this all-encompassing term for someone who not only has it all but but is everything and he is everything completely and entirely and this object that is being described as glorious as, as beautiful and powerful and majestic more than what we see when we step outside and even look at the mountains here the mountains here are majestic but I wouldn't describe them as glorious not even close and here Phineas's wife talks about the glory departing from Israel glory departing she perceives the glory to have departed from Israel because the, the ark had been stolen and, and because a few men whom she perceived to be good had died glory I wonder how the rest of scripture describes glory Isaiah chapter 28 verse 5 Isaiah is prophesying. He's a, he's a prophet. That's what prophets do. They prophesy. Isaiah is prophesying. Chapter 28, verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. Glorious diadem to the remnant of his people. In Isaiah chapter 40 verse 5 the prophet writes this. He probably said it too but I know for sure he wrote it because it's right here. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. Of course here he's referring to, to Jesus coming being coming into ministry following the ministry of, of John the Baptist is what Isaiah is prophesying about here and the glory of the Lord will be revealed as Jesus comes following the ministry of John the Baptist and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken why why will all flesh see it together because the mouth of the Lord has spoken what the Lord speaks comes to pass but the glory of the Lord is the thing that is revealed in Christ Jesus is the glory of the Lord revealed in any church? Is the glory of the Lord revealed in any person? And the glory of the Lord is revealed in Christ. It belongs to Christ. It is Christ. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. God says this through the prophet, I am the Lord. That is my name. And of course the word for Lord there is God's proper name, Yahweh. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, emphatic, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. 
now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His His glory. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw His glory. God's glory in in Christ. The Word became flesh. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God, we have all fallen short of, of God's God's glory. First Corinthians chapter ten verse thirty-one. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And even when the text of Scripture speaks about glory in reference to people, God is the owner of the glory. And if we are to see any glory whatsoever, it's in, in the glory that belongs to God, not in some fading glory that is, that is in and of our, ourselves. Do it to the glory of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. With whose glory? God's. There are a lot of things people do for glory. Fighting in wars. Fighting on the playground. Athletics. Glory. Winning. Video games. Glory. There's a lot of glory in that for some people. Used to be for me. No time for it now. Glory. Here, the only glory described in all of Scripture is a glory that belongs only to God, and God has said that He will not share His glory with another person. And if we are to experience any true and lasting glory whatsoever, it will be the glory of, of God. God, it will be the glory of God. There's this amazing process of sanctification. Have you... <laughs> this is me last night, so don't, don't laugh too hard. Have you ever given a toddler bad news? <laughs> Like, I don't know. No, son. You can't have another piece of cake. It's time for bed. And there is this wailing and this crying and this flailing about on the ground. We call it we call them temper tantrums, don't we? And hopefully, us in this room, hopefully we've grown out of that, right? Hopefully we've grown out of that. Some, no, hopefully we've grown out of that. But then we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that Paul actually tells us that we're, we're all pretty much like children while we're on this earth in the same way 
that a toddler will scream and holler and cry and wail. And you say, no, you can't have a piece of cake. It's time for bed. We know it's for their good. No, they don't know it's for their good. All they know is, I want that cake, Dad. I don't know it's for their good. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this to the, the church at Corinth. When I was a child, when I was a toddler, right? I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. Like I got to experience last night and, and every night. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now this is an illustration. This isn't, this isn't the theological truth. This is the illustration that illustrates, paints a picture of the theological truth, which is in verse 12. For now, he's saying that when I was a child in this life, I thought like a child in this life, but now that I'm a man, I think like a man in this life. Now he's likening this whole life to that the childhood tendency. Now we see in the mirror dimly. Now, this is humbling for us, right? Now we all think like children in a divine perspective or from a divine perspective. Now we all think like children from an eternal perspective. Now we all think like children, act like children. The Israelites wailed at the work of God. We often wail at the work of God. But when God defeats us and when God does something that causes us to wail, we often, we don't, we don't see the divine plan. We don't see what God is working together from eternity. We, we see in a mirror dimly, but, but then when we are grown, when we are, when we are mature, when we are complete, when we are with Christ forevermore, but then we will see face to face and we will see clearly. Now I know in part, still learning, still maturing, still growing, still trying to figure things out and still sometimes flailing about on the ground wailing because I don't get my way or because I don't experience uh, some sort of a victory that I think I ought to experience. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully. Can you imagine when we get there and we're with Christ and we look back on our, our lives on this earth and we'll just be like, what was, I, what was I doing? Some of us already do that. We will know fully just as we also have been fully known. So this, there's this process, right? First, man, we start out seeking self-glory. Seeking self-glory. I've seen this a couple ways in my own life that are just really obvious to me. When I was a child, I wanted to be a professional rollerblader because I saw the movie Brink and because I perceived there to be some sort of glory in being a professional rollerblader. People would notice I'd have some renown. I'd be able to travel the world. That would be cool. Glory. The other way that's a little bit more recent, when I started my, my ministry career, call it a career, I don't know if that's a proper term to describe ministry. When I started my ministry career, 
started out doing youth ministry specifically, right? One of the ways I, I became convinced that I, that I wanted to do youth ministry, I fought with God for a while on that. No, I don't want to do ministry. There's, there's no glory in it. But then, then I went to camp. Then got involved in, in youth ministry, more involved in helping to lead youth ministry. And it was my, my senior year in, in high school. And I saw youth leaders stand up, man. Cool microphone, cool outfits, cool games, energetic. And they would talk and everybody would applaud. That's glory. Man, that would be so cool. Yes, Lord, if that's what you're calling me to, please, please, I'll do that. So thanks for this weird, this is just an American thing, right? That's it. We don't don't see this anywhere else. It's an American thing started less than 100 years ago. It's that recent. We developed this youth ministry entertainment personality culture. And I was drawn into that early in my ministry, and that's what I wanted. Come to find out if I really wanted to serve God, follow God, Minister wasn't so glorious for the servant because God always got the credit. I was just a little disappointed. I didn't flail about on the ground and wail. I was a little disappointed though, right? And come to find out my entire my entire experience in youth ministry was, was like the sham. And almost every other student in the youth ministry with me left the church because Jesus was the background and something else was at the forefront of the ministry and they were, they were teaching us how to not have sex before marriage rather than about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Rather than saying, you will make mistakes and you won't be able to measure up, but Jesus is taking care of this for you and you are saved by grace through faith alone. Look, those words were thrown thrown about, but we weren't given the scriptures. We were given moralistic teaching. And guys, that's devastating to the church. And that's devastating to the person. And that kills us more than it makes us alive. Sure, we have fun for a while. That got old quick. Now more than 70% of my generation isn't in church. It doesn't have anything to do with Christ. Guys, we've got to do better. Scripture is important. Glory. We seek glory. We want glory. But God is bringing us out of our own glory. As He was doing with the nation of Israel, Israel is this pictorial prophecy, this living parable of the spiritual people of God. And God is taking, taking His time with us, being patient with us, coming to us. Christ emptied himself for, for, for us, his people. And he's pulling us out of this glory that we perceive, a glory that fades, a fading glory, a shadow of the glory of God. And he is bringing his people into the glory of God, which is way better than anything else we can experience, period. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's other letter to the church at Corinth. The church was so bad that Paul had to write up two letters. 
2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 18. Listen to to Paul's words as as he talks about this process of sanctification and our being brought out of our own glory into into the glory of God. If, If we are children of God. But if the ministry of death, this was death under the law, right? The law was given so that people would look to it and not try and keep a checklist of things to do, but they would look at it. It's a mirror. It reveals our unrighteousness, reveals our sinfulness so that we turn to Christ, recognize our need for grace. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, direct reference to what? The the Ten Commandments, even. The Ten Commandments of ministry of death. Say that next time you tell somebody about the Ten Commandments. Hey, you know about God's ministry of death? (laughs) Maybe we ought not lead with that. All right. But the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses. It's like God's glory rubbed off on Moses. Because of the glory of his face fading as it was. It's this fading glory. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So in the law, God's glory was revealed, but in a, in a way that was, was fleeting, in a way that was fading, right? Human religiosity, we might get a taste of the glory. A taste. I just want a taste of the glory. A taste. Nobody in here understands that reference. That's okay. So it be called Nacho Libre. Please watch it. It's amazing. For if the ministry of the condemnation of glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Taste of the the glory with the law. Fading glory with the law. But in Christ, glory eternal. Unfading glory. A glory that abounds in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Christ came, fulfilled the law. There is no more glory, none whatsoever, according to Paul, in moralistic teaching, moralistic living, trying to keep a checklist. That was fleeting. That was meant for a time until all righteousness was fulfilled in Christ, not in us. And Christ's glory is the glory that surpasses it. For, for if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. People are still reading the Bible as if it's a checklist or a list of instructions for life or or a list of of, of things by which we can make our lives lives better or make good decisions. That veil has been lifted. That was that stuff was meant to lead us to Christ, not to lead us to make better decisions. 
remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their, their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, Jesus Christ, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Freedom, in this case, from the law, from this burdensome religious checklist, me being given the responsibility to try and better my own life that, that didn't work anyway. It was meant to show me my insufficiencies. In Christ, that veil is, is lifted. There's liberty. We're free from that. Christians no longer live that way. And anyone who does live that way is not living in Christ. There, there's liberty. But we all, now with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from a glory that was a fading glory to a, a glory in Christ a glory that belongs to God a glory that is eternal are being transformed this is sanctification into the same image from glory a glory that was to glory glory that is eternal just as from the Lord the Spirit that's just the basic gospel you can't do it you can't make your life better you need the grace of Christ you need the forgiveness of God you are unrighteous and you are sinful so you need the the righteousness and the perfection of Christ to be placed upon you like a, like a shirt be imputed to you that's what that means placed upon you like a garment so that we are seen not by a righteousness of our own but by the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ and glory belongs to him so when, when Phineas is wife is saying the glory has departed. She has quite a skewed view of the glory of God. She attached God's glory to victory and to the Ark of the Covenant. And God's glory doesn't belong to any material object or to any person. God's glory is God's glory. And the story, God is working out things according to His plan and according to His purpose. The people were experiencing defeat. God was not experiencing defeat. God is the one working all things together. And He owns all glory. And it doesn't belong to us. Our objective is to dwell in the glory of God, which the Israelites were not doing at this point. Right? They were rebelling against God, fleeing from His glory. I want to ask you this morning, is there, has there been a misconception about what glory is or about what victory in Christ is? Is there a sense in which we, ex we expect God to fight our battles for us? And to be on our team rather than us being on His team? Or rather than us being concerned with the things that God is, is concerned with? 
being concerned with escaping this fading glory and being brought by God into the, the glory of God. And how do we perceive glory? What causes us to seek glory for ourselves? I mean, we, we have to consider these questions, right? The, the text bids us consider, consider these, these questions. As, as a church body, how do we perceive glory? How is glory perceived in most church bodies? By the size and the sparkle of her ministries? Glory. By the number of buildings that the church has, glory. And if a church is, is doing more stuff more often, it is, it is seen as this glorious thing. But when, when we see the glory of God in, in, the, in the text we're today, it's something quite different, isn't it? God actually devastates his chosen people, the pictorial prophecy, this living parable of who his spiritual people are. He devastates his people so that his glory might be seen. And so when, a, when any church body experiences loss, when we in our personal lives experience loss, devastation, loss of Finances. We're not able to do as much as, as, as we used to do. And God just ruins us. Like he did with me and my, my view of ministry or my dream to be a professional role leader. God just ruins us. That's part of his plan. That's not what you wanted to hear this morning, is it? Sorry. It's part of his plan. So that his glory might be revealed. And so that this fading glory that we perceive ourselves to have might be completely and utterly ruined. Because that has to be ruined before we can be brought to dwell in the glory and the righteousness of, of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. I want to close with this. I just want to read again from... 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we saw this amazing prayer from Hannah, this amazing, robust theology of God's sovereignty. And I, I just want to read verses 7 and 8. Look at this. this. This has to do with individuals. This has to do with nations. This has to do with churches. This has to do with any organization. This has to do with families, with households, with everything. It's all-encompassing. Verses 7 and 8. 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. Nothing about us. He raises the poor from the dust. Uh, I don't pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't just work hard to climb the corporate ladder. I can't... He raises the poor from the dust. He, God, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor 
for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He set the world on them. He owns the world. He owns the foundation of the world. Not us. As we get so concerned with, with us, what we want, what we're doing. This life isn't about us. This, this life isn't about us at all. God is working things together for His glory. He is the one laden with riches and respect and honor, majesty, beauty, power. Him, Him, He is. Not us. Not us by a by a long shot. So here's what I want to do this morning. Observe our hearts. We're going to have a time of music and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. Here's what I want us to do. Just examine our own hearts. Why do we go to church? Simple question. Difficult question to answer sometimes. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we claim to be Christians? Why Why do we do the things that we do? It sounds a lot like the exact question I asked two weeks ago. Well, we examine our hearts. In response to this text, are we trying to achieve some sort of glory for ourselves? Are we concerned with the things that we want rather than coming together and honoring God who has all glory? Have we really been changed? Have we really received this heart from Christ? Are we really being, being sanctified, conformed to the image of Christ? If, if our answer is anything other than I love God's glory and if we don't actually have this desire for our own fading glory to be done away with brothers and sisters we don't know Jesus we haven't been given a new heart and that means we are not saved and that can be a devastating truth. So first I have to ask this. If this describes you that we don't hunger for the glory of God, instead we hunger to be entertained, to have music in a certain way, to have this or that, to have certain ministries, to, to, to have a church that is just growing and expanding and planting campuses here and here and here and here and, and if our, if our thought is in some way we want to take over the world, and there, there are many ways people can try and plan to do that, right? We don't know Jesus. There is repentance needed. It may be the case that Christ is calling someone here into a very real relationship with himself when previously, man, we've just been fooling ourselves into thinking that we are 
religious or Christian. God changes our hearts, brings it to his own glory, according to, to Paul in, in his letter to the church at Corinth. According to this text here, we, we see that. Please surrender this morning. It might be the case for some Christians, people who do have belief in Jesus, who do follow, follow Jesus. man I'm just in a slump in a season where I've fallen into sin or I've become more self-concerned right I still love the glory of God and I still want to I want to come back you have a great support system here come back repent before the Lord share your struggles with a brother or sister in this auditorium say brother sister help me I desire to come back and to the glory of God, to be clothed more fully in the glory of God. And don't be afraid that anybody's going to judge you or condemn you here. The biblical truth is this, we're all toddlers. Isn't that great? We're just all toddlers. We're all growing together. <laughs>